Okay, now, let's open our Bibles together to Acts chapter 20. And let me read you a portion of Acts chapter 20, beginning at verse 17. We'll go to the end of the chapter. Here we go. Uh, That which is inerrant, infallible, inspired, the very mind of God is black words on a white page, beginning at verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among among whom I have gone uh, about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all, because the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. Guys, this is a very touching scene. Did you, did you... Did you pick up what's going on here? Um, this is an aging pastor saying goodbye. Oh, now it works. Um, um, this is an aging pastor who is saying goodbye to a group of elders that he loved. Now, several months ago, um, one morning in my dealing with this, with this passage... It kind of led me to our next series that we're going to be in today. What I did that morning is that after reading this, I, I began to wonder what else the New Testament uh, has to say about the church that's at Ephesus. And I found out there's, there's quite a bit. There's quite a bit in the New Testament about this church at Ephesus. And so I began tracking it all down and, and, and just 
wondering about it. And, and as a result, I, I think um, the Lord led me to uh, this series that I'm launching today uh, over the book of Ephesians. You know, part of what the New Testament has to say about the church at Ephesus is a letter that Paul wrote to Ephesus called Ephesians. Um, it's a very doctrinaire book, particularly in the chapters 1 and 2. But uh, I've decided that I'm going to limit myself. I, I bet you, this is not an idle boast, I don't think. I bet you I could preach 20 sermons out of Ephesians 1. They probably wouldn't be very fun to listen to, but I, I, bet, you, I bet you I could. But what I'm going to do is limit myself to two sermons per chapter. There's six chapters in the book of Ephesians, and that means 12 sermons plus today, 13. So we're going to look at the book of Ephesus. We're going to look at the book of Ephesians uh, as Paul is here talking to a group of elders that led in that church in Ephesus. Paul planted this church. He planted the church on his second missionary journey, along with his friends Priscilla and Aquila, towards the end of his second missionary journey. At one point, the, the people at Ephesus asked Paul if he would stay longer. He declined, but he expressed a hope that, that, um, that he could return and see them at a later date, which he did in his third missionary journey, and he spent two years uh, there in Ephesus on that second visit, which is the longest that he'd ever stayed any one place. He spent one year the first time, two years the second time, which is a total of three years. And, and the reason I say that, or the reason I draw your attention to that, is because um, he spent three years with these guys. He knows these guys. He's, he's, he's come to love these guys. They've, they've, they've experienced a lot together. Let, let me read you this. Is, this is out of Acts 19. Verse 11 says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. You know where he was doing that? In Ephesus. He was doing it alongside these guys. Uh, they had experienced a lot together, some of it good, some of it bad. But, you know, you, you go through those kind of ministerial fires together and, and you develop this, this sweetness for one another. You know, several of the stories that, that you may remember uh, concerning the book or the church at Ephesus um, uh, might come to mind. For instance, do you remember the, the story of the seven sons of Sceva? Remember that story? These, these seven young men were trying to do the same things that Paul were doing, was doing, and, and a demon jumps on them and beats them up, and they run out of the house naked. That happened in Ephesus. Or how about the, uh, that big book burning? You remember the big book burning thing where everybody brought their books from, uh, about witchcraft and magic, and they, and they burned them all up? That happened in Ephesus. And somebody in the text said it amounted to like 50,000 pieces of silver, which sounds like a whole lot of money. That happened in Ephesus. There's another story I bet you do remember. It was about a riot. A riot that took place um, because, as you may recall, Ephesus was the headquarters of the goddess Diana. And there was a, 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 a quite a lucrative trade in Ephesus uh, with the silversmiths there in Ephesus who made these little statuettes of Diana and would sell them. And of course, Paul preaches the gospel in Ephesus and, and that business gets damaged greatly because nobody's buying statuettes of Diana anymore. And so the coppersmiths don't like, I mean, the silversmiths don't like all that. And so they, they precipitate a riot in Ephesus. That took place in Ephesus. Well, as a result of that, Paul leaves Ephesus, heads north over into Greece. But on his way back to Jerusalem, his boat over the Mediterranean Sea, his boat docks 
at a little coastal city by the name of Miletus. Um, and while he's in Miletus, he sends a messenger up to Ephesus, 30 miles away, and says to the, 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 the elders at Ephesus, come down and visit with me. And so they do. And what I read you this morning from Acts chapter 20 is, is a little speech that Paul makes to those Ephesian elders who have come down to visit him in Miletus. After having spent three years together on two different occasions, he, they, they come down and, and Paul, in essence, bids them farewell. It's a moving scene, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, do you see how it ends? With everybody crying and, and uh, you know, hugging and, uh, you know, they're praying together. And, and uh, they're, they're most sad about the comment about, uh, we'll never see your, my, your face again and all that business. This is tender. He says things about his ministry, about his three-year ministry there in Ephesus. <laughs> Things that I wish I could say about mine, among you. Like in verse 19, you'll notice, he says, I serve the Lord with all humility. (laughs) I wish I could say that. But I don't think I can. Verse 20, he says, I I taught you the whole counsel. or, Or I kept back nothing profitable from you. I'd like to be able to say that about my time with you. I'm not sure I can. Then... Then he says in, in verse 27 that uh, I, I went house to house and I, I preached the whole counsel of God to you. I, I wish that, that I could say that, and I, and, I, and I hope I can. But guys, I, I, if, you, if, you, if you look at the, the Acts 20 event, you'll notice that it really isn't about Paul summarizing his three-year ministry among them. That's not what his focus is. His focus really occurs in verses 28 through 31, those, those four verses in 28 through 31. And his, his major concern to have them come visit with him was that he wanted to warn them. He wanted to warn them about their upcoming future. He, want them, he wanted to caution them. He wanted to say, beware. And, and he says, of the fierce wolves. You see, it's in verse 28, I think. By the way, one of the translations uses the word savage. I like that word. Beware of those savage wolves. Those savage wolves. He's, he's, he's saying goodbye to a, to a group of men that he, that he loves. And he's, he's concerned about the things that are going to happen to them in their not-too-distant future. And, and, and the, the thing that he mentions is wolves. Savage wolves. Now, guys, I, I, I want you to see this, if you've still got your Bibles open. Because he tells you, he tells you about where these wolves are going to come from in um, verse 29. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves, savage wolves, will come in among you, not sparing the flock. He says, there's going to be wolves, and they're going to they're attack this church. And they're going to come in from the outside. But here's the shocking point, ladies and gentlemen. Look at verse 30. And from among your own selves, 
will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. You know, ladies and gentlemen, you expect dangers from outside. That's predictable. But from the inside, look at verse 30. And from among your own selves. There's danger for you guys because savage wolves are going are gonna to come in from the outside and, and seek to devour you. But not only that, not only are you going to have problems from people on the outside, they're already within you. They're like little termites. They're kind of clawing away at the, at, at the vitals of the church. You know, guys, um, there always seems to be a tendency in the Christian church to fall away from the truth. And now you know why. You know, I I, um, drew your attention to a quote, oh, I don't know, a couple years ago that I found in a commentary by Martin Lord-Jones. And um, I've used it with the elders on several occasions. It's it's only seven words, but I'm telling you, it just, it it, it drives me crazy. Here's the quote. Every institution tends to produce its opposite. Every institution tends to produce its opposite. Well, we're an institution. What are we going to look like in 30 years, huh? You know, the examples that I gave you were the um, Harvard, Princeton, and Yale. Harvard, Princeton, and Yale, ladies and gentlemen, all three began as, as institutions that were designed to train pastors for the gospel ministry. And now look at them. And, and the one that I particularly have picked on is, is, is Princeton. At Princeton, the first four presidents of Princeton University were men who were heroes of mine. One of them was Jonathan Edwards. And look at Princeton today. It is the bastion of, of liberal, liberal everything. Liberal philosophy and liberal ethics and liberal morality. Well, what about the... What about the United Methodist Church? John Wesley would roll over in his grave if he knew what had happened to the United Methodist Church. How about the United Presbyterian Church? You know, ladies and gentlemen, I've never been a part of that denomination, although I am an ordained Presbyterian. I'm an ordained Presbyterian in another another outfit. But in the United Presbyterian Church, just this summer, in our city, the city of Memphis, Tennessee... Four congregations withdrew from that denomination and went into another denomination. And you know the issue? You remember the issue. It was in the paper. The ordination of homosexuals to the clergy. 
Or how about Episcopalianism? Everybody seems to know that story. Because you see, ladies and gentlemen, every institution tends tends to produce its opposite. That's what Paul is warning these Ephesian elders about. You know, the, the, the process is a slow, subtle thing. It's kind of like erosion. It's almost imperceptible. Remember, it was, it was really, um, gosh, four years ago. It was August of 2007, that bridge outside of Minneapolis. Um, I-35 West, I think it was, that collapsed. 13 people were killed. And when they came in to look and examine and investigate what happened, the, the, the bridge had opened in 1967, been there for 40 years. There was no design flaw. There was no structurally uh, uh, poor things that had been designed into it. It just, over time, just had deteriorated. 13 people died. You know, it, it seems like the things that are particularly offensive to the... Um, to the world are, are certain doctrines that the Christian church holds dear, but three in particular that I would mention. First of all, the, the, the exceeding sinfulness of man. Oh, no, 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 no. Man is born good, and, and um, you know, it's the culture that ruined him. Or, or the, the solitary truth of the Bible. You can't hold in a position like that. I mean, there's other religious books out there. There's the Koran. There's the Book of Mormon. I mean, your, 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 your book is no better than theirs. Those books. Well, you can't hold to a position like that. And then, of course, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. In its place gets substituted this thing of some kind of self-salvation project. Some kind of do this and get saved. You know, be this and yada, yada, yada. And if you do these things... And you know what, ladies and gentlemen? All of that comes from the inside. We got things like the Jesus seminar that is absolutely ludicrous. We've got big churches being built in Texas and Michigan by men who oppose fundamental positions of the Christian church. It's all from, it's all from the inside. You know, and it, 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 at least for me, it's, it's made so much more complex by, by, by what I call... Um, a, a, a principle of delay. What, what I mean by that is simply that God does not react immediately. That God is long-suffering. And so the process begins, and he doesn't address it immediately. And, and in the New Testament says he, he won't. Um, there's, there's several parables. There's one in Luke 13, the, the, the parable of the barren fig tree, where the owner of the, 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 the fig trees comes in and says, you know, that fig tree's been here for three years, and it has never born a fig. Chop that thing down. And the man that works in the, the, the fig trees, he says, well, let me, give me another year. You know, let me dig around it and put some manure in there, and, and, and uh, let's just see. Let's just see if we can. And if it doesn't do anything, we'll chop it down then. 
Or how about that parable in um, Matthew 21 of the, uh, of the wicked tenants where the owner of the vineyard goes off and, and, then, and then at harvest time he comes back, he sends his representatives back to get his uh, share of the, of the prophets and, and they beat him up and throw him out and stone him and finally he sends his son and they kill him. All of that suggesting, ladies and gentlemen, that God is long-suffering. And so the process that begins <coughs> and goes ever so imperceptibly does not get arrested. And that process is taking place on the inside. Go back to the, um, the text. Well, actually, what happened to the church at Ephesus? How'd they do? I mean, did they listen to Paul? I mean, did they, uh, did they, did they uh, do what he said? Well, we do get a record of how they did, uh, but we have to go to the book of Revelation to get it. Uh, some 30 years later, John writes something that's um, pertinent. You know, um, by this time, Paul is dead. Paul is dead and, and Peter is dead and James is dead and, and those elders from Ephesus, they're all dead. But John is the only apostle still alive and he has been exiled by the Roman government to a little scrubby little island in the southern part of the Aegean Sea, the, an isle called Patmos. And, and there Jesus visits him and says, listen, I, I've got to, uh, something I want you to do for me. I want you to write seven letters. I want you to write seven letters to seven churches that are in Asia Minor. Guess which church is number one on Jesus's list? Yeah, that would be the church at Ephesus. And let me, let me read to you what Jesus says about the church at Ephesus. He says this, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Whoa, yay, yay for the church at Ephesus. Look how good they're doing. I'm telling you, these people have remained true to orthodox doctrines. I mean, they've been busy. They, you know, they, they, they took Paul's words to heart, and they've been on guard against these savage wolves. I mean, they, uh, they did good deeds, and they've been persevering. Who wouldn't want to hear something like that? Not so fast. There's, there's more to the letter. You come to verse 4, and it says, and Jesus says, But I have this against you. You know, <laughs> you know there's, in, the, in the Greek language, there are several uh, what they call particles. Um, that can be translated with the English conjunction, but. But the most emphatic one, the, 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 the biggest one is the, is the word Allah. Um, and it's as if Jesus says, yeah, you've been doing good here and here and here, but. You know, a couple of years ago, I, I went to the doctor uh, for my annual physical and, and, you know, he goes and does all these tests. And, and, and so he comes back in the little examination room and he brings all these little papers in and he says, well, you know, Jimmy, uh, you know, I want you to know that your numbers are really good. I mean, your blood pressure is really good and your, your, uh, your, your cholesterol is really good and your, and your HDL and your LDLs and all those things and your, and your, uh, your, your triglycerides, they're, they're really good. You know, he says, uh, uh, but I have a concern. 
And at that point, ladies and gentlemen, I don't give a hoot about my triglycerides and the, the, the HDLs and the LDLs. It's like all of that good information gets eclipsed by what is about to come after that but. And, and guys, not only is that but really emphatic in, in Revelation chapter 2, but also the weight given to the order of the words in the original language. I've told you this before, but as, an, as a Greek author, the way that you emphasize things is the way that you place them in the order of the sentence. The most emphatic part was the front of the sentence. The second most emphatic was the back of the sentence. But this sentence, in essence, in terms of its order, should say something like this. Your first love, you have left. You were strong in your deeds and in your doctrines. and But your hearts have cooled. How does that happen? How does that happen, ladies and gentlemen? I'll tell you how. Guys, you remember when you, when you first got married? And every evening was made for romance. And, and, and every song was a love song. And, and every walk was an opportunity to, uh, to hold hands. And every part of life was about joy and intimacy and fun and, and passion. But as the years begin to stack up, something happened. Your life began to, to focus on your career or perhaps the kids or those pesky little deadlines and all manner of busyness. And as a result, you're no longer as vulnerable with each other as you once were. Your enthusiasm has waned. And before you know it, an intimate relationship is replaced with perfunctory obligations. You've left your first love. Your affections have cooled. It wasn't on purpose. It just... It just happened. How does it happen? I just told you. I just told you how it happened, ladies and gentlemen. All of these distractions begin to wedge themselves in between you and the object of your love. That's how it happened at Ephesus. It's how it happens here. If you go back to um, our text, Acts chapter 20, there's a statement in there that is so moving to me, ladies and gentlemen. I, I memorized it years ago. But every time I come upon it, it's... it's um, I, I think what it is is Paul's... It's his last best piece of advice. He knows he's not going to see these guys anymore. He knows that he really can't 
come in and do what he really would like to do. And, and so he gives them their last best piece of advice that he can as a pastor. And I want to say it like I think he said it. Like a pastor who loves people, his people would say it. It's in verse 32. And he looks at those guys and he says, And now, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Which is able to build you up. And they will give you an inheritance among them which are sanctified. Paul understands that the safest place for these people to be is to be commended to God and to the word of his grace. The the only safeguard is to regularly commend yourself to God and to the word of his grace. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the most tender, it, it seems to me, of what this pastor said to, to these people. He knows that this is the safest place for these people. When it comes to their marriages, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. When it comes to the, to the family and raising the kids, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. When it comes to the protection of your soul from the savage wolves, he says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. And if you move away from there, So, ladies and gentlemen, I can tell you that's going to mean for us, it's going to mean a a constant self-examination. Guys, churches don't erode, people do. F.B. Meyer once said that no one suddenly becomes base. No one one afternoon calls their best friend and says, hey, I think I'll go out and just ruin my life. What do you say? No. But we do entertain thoughts like these. Um, you know, there is an area of my life that I just refuse to give up. There are, there are certain parts of my life where the Lordship of Jesus Christ be damned. No, it's mine. And I'm not giving it up. Some things are good. Career, family. Some things are bad. An affair. Pornography. And inevitably, love cools. And we become perfunctory in our walk with Jesus Christ. It's just a routine duty. We're just going through the motions. And so, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace.
is Jesus Christ really my first love or does he truly make a difference in, in the way that I live my life or is, it just, is he just my Sunday gig? You want to be able to answer that question for yourself? I can tell you how. Just go find out the places that you're willing to sacrifice for. What things are you willing to make sacrifices for? Because that's where you're going to find your first love, ladies and gentlemen. Where have I carved out a time and a place to work on my relationship with Jesus Christ? You know, one of the things that I I like to say in my wedding ceremony, I don't say it all the time, but I say it sometimes. I love to say this. Two little starry-eyed kids sit standing in front of me. I I say, uh, you know, you don't fall in love. You climb into it. Guys, maintaining marital sweetness requires work. We all know that. But it seems that all these distractions like like vacations and a second home and soccer and hobbies wedge themselves in between me and Jesus Christ and he gets moved to the margins of my life. Which means we have left our first love. I know not what else to say to you. Except this. And now, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Our Father, forgive us if indeed um, the little termites, the little erosion process has begun on our souls. And, and I, I would um, guess that it has begun on all of our souls. And I pray, Father, that you would remind us that the safest place to be is close to you. And one of the ways that we get close is by yielding ourselves and submitting ourselves to the word of your grace. That we, that we find ourselves submitted entirely to the principles and truths and mandates and statutes that are found in your word. And I pray, O oh God, that you would raise up a strong and mighty people here at Gracie Van. So strong and so mighty that our community, though they may not agree with us, though they may not attend here, though they may not be able to accept our doctrines, but that our community would be glad that we're here because of the value that we add to this community as a result of chasing after Jesus Christ. Father, um, forgive us, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, beckon us. We 
we ask it in Jesus' name.